it is about sitting at your computer for hours and hours and hours every week and making sure that you're getting it right and that you're finding the right angle. Find something that you actually care about if you're not interested by the things that you're writing in. So you can probably fake it for a little while, but I think it really like comes through when the writer is really interested in the things that they're writing about. In today's episode, I talked to Packy McCormick, who writes the really popular newsletter, Not Boring. Uh, Packy was the VP of experience at a company called Breather, and then he left that role to start another startup and then decided to start a newsletter instead. And uh, Not Boring has grown to over 30,000 subscribers. He's got some pretty fantastic revenue. He dives into the specifics. So if you're curious how much you can make off of a 30,000 subscriber mailing list, uh, we, we talk about that. One of my favorite things is we get into business models. So paid subscription, is that best? Selling products or sponsorships? And so we dive in, Packy shares why he chose the model that he did and why he thinks it's the best for his audience. So it's a really fun, wide-ranging conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. Packy, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I want to just dive in and hear a little bit about what are your, some of your favorite things to write about? Yeah. So my favorite things to write about, and I actually, it took me a while to kind of get back to my favorite things to write about. I was writing about community and sleep and like just kind of all over just doing the, I think the normal early newsletter thing of like thinking that you're a, a fantastic curator of the internet. And what I really loved writing about recently is, is business strategy, companies big, companies small, and mixing that with finance. So it's taken a couple of years, but I think I've kind of hit this sweet spot where it's a more fun approach to these topics that are kind of not super fun normally, um, which is business analysis and finance and the stock market. So just trying to you know make it approachable, fun, and enjoyable while you're learning something. Yeah. So what's an example of one of those of like um, business strategy for a particular company that you've you've enjoyed? So I this past week I wrote about Twitter um, and and wrote about you know how Twitter is this company that has been you know that I think a lot of us use and are on all the time, but has done an absolutely horrendous job of monetizing. So talked about it through the lens of Professor Scott Galloway wrote a piece. And so what was wrong with that piece? And then what I thought that Twitter should do and why I think that Twitter is actually undervalued and this idea of like, you know, once things start kind of changing for Twitter, there's so much love for the company that I think people are just going to pile into the stock. A lot of this is about being lucky. I wrote this on Monday. They reported earnings on Tuesday and it's up like 27% since I wrote about it. So just got super lucky on, on timing there. But there's a lot of that, like kind of combining how they should think about business strategy and then how that parlays into the market. So it's less really quantitative and more like, here's kind of what everybody's saying about this company. Here's what they're doing. Here's what maybe they should be doing. And if they do that, here's what it might look like. Today, for example, I wrote about um, why angel uh, early stage valuations are not as crazy as they seem based on the fact that Amazon and Apple and Facebook and all these huge companies have grown actually way faster than the average startup valuation has round by round by round. And so just kind of walking through that, but then weaving in the movie up as an analogy and, uh, you know, the four minute mile. And so just trying to like make it super fun and, and approachable. Yeah. I like that one. Well, and I have to say, I, on Monday last week, I read your Twitter post, um, especially cause you know, you're diving into like creator economy and all this stuff that is just so much fun. Um, and then I was like, you know, this is a compelling case. And I've owned you know, Twitter stock for years, but not very much. And so I bought more um, after that article. So you're already making me money. That's that's amazing here. That scares the hell out of me. So I, I wrote about Slack a couple of weeks before they <laughs> yeah. before they got acquired. 
and you know had this like really this this case of like I love this company they're just being mistreated by the market all these things and and made a I think a fairly compelling bull case and then they popped for a totally different reason something that I did not write about but people came out of the woodworks and were like oh thank you so much I I bought Slack because you said to buy Slack and and I got a little bit scared frankly because I was like I'm not a professional I'm not a registered advisor I'm not like amazing if you like then go do your own due diligence love that you're investing but like it is kind of scary now that the audience is big enough that people are actually putting money behind the things that i'm writing which is wild yeah you don't want the like yep i put my kids college fund in there like it's going to be fully funded to whatever school now thanks to your advice and you're like please no <laughs> not at all. exactly it works too i mean like the whole thing and one of the things that I, i'm nervous about frankly is that the way that I write and the things that I write about work really, really well in this ridiculous bull market that we're in the middle of where every tech stock is just totally up and to the right, where I could throw a, you know, a dart at a dartboard and then pick a stock that way. And probably it's going to go up a little bit and then I can look smart. It'd be really interesting to see just kind of what general reader interest is in a time when the market is like a lot more boring or flat or down or x y or z thing when the market changes but i feel like i'm lucky that we're in this spot right now that the thing that i care about and enjoy writing about the most is also the thing that is doing the best in the market well i think it'll be interesting because if i might be reading into this too much but you're trying to write about the long-term things that make the company and the business model and the strategy interesting rather than like what the stock is going to do this week or this month or even this year and so that would be like you don't want people taking away that like write about it on Monday, it'll make money on Tuesday. That's the wrong thing. It's more of like, hey, Twitter as a whole over the next five, 10 years is probably undervalued because of all of these things. A hundred percent. And that's the way that I approach it. And then what ends up happening, I think particularly because there've been things like the Twitter or Slack or whatever else, what ends up happening is that people just buy the next day because they're like, cool, I'm in it for the long term. And so, you know, my big caveat always is that I have no idea what's going to happen in the next month, day, year, week, whatever. But Long term, I think these companies are in a really good spot. And I think people in the markets are just not used to companies with as massive a TAM or a massive a potential market to address as a lot of these companies have and the business model right. that these companies have. And so if these things do well, I don't think they're constrained necessarily by even Apple's kind of current $2.2 trillion market cap. I think there's massive upside in a lot of these companies. But yeah, for sure, that will take a long time to play out in some cases. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to go back to you know, how the newsletters changed over time. And maybe before that, um, what made you start a newsletter in the first place? Yeah. So I actually, so I was at a company called Breather, um, which did kind of on-demand meeting and workspace, loved it, but was there for, you know, I was in year number six when I started the newsletter. And so I think after you're at a startup for that long, it gets a little bit stale. We brought in a professional exec team, which made it a little bit staler. And I was like, man, I need to like exercise my brain a little bit because I'm not getting that at work right now. And so I took David Perel's Write a Passage course and loved it. And as part of that, um, you know, one of the assignments was just go start a Substack. And so at that point, I probably had 300 followers on Twitter. Uh, this was April 2019. So 300 followers on Twitter and, uh, you know, nobody obviously subscribed to the newsletter. I had a bag the first time I set up my Substack. I sent out a tweet that was like, please, just like, I need to get 20 people to subscribe to this. Like, please just sign up so I don't have to ask people individually. And so that's that's kind of how the whole thing started. And really, it was this exploration for the first year or so where I was just sending links. And sometimes I'd go a little bit deeper on something, but it was things that I was listening to and, and reading. I think it's a really good way to start doing that and kind of summarizing other people's work and getting that muscle 
in the beginning, I was petrified every time I hit send that like there was this text chain going on among my friends that were like, what is Packy doing? Like he went to a good school, he worked in finance for a while. And now he's like, he's sending this newsletter every Sunday, just that are like random internet links. Like what the hell is going on here? Um, but did that for a while, a while, a while. Was in the middle of starting a company. Never thought that it was going to be my uh, my full time thing. Company was like Breather, kind of a physical place based thing. Left Breather kind of at the end of twenty twenty or the end of twenty nineteen to start that, um, and then COVID hit. And so I was like, oh man, all right, I've grown this newsletter to like three hundred and fifty people now, and that is like the asset that I have professionally because this company is at least on pause and maybe dead. Uh, and so let me just see if I, you know, rename this thing from per my last email, which it was called to not boring and start writing some essays. Like, could this be enough that it at least pays rent and gives me time to figure out if this company is going to be the thing that I do, like pretty much anything to help me avoid getting a job. And so right. set a couple of kind of short term goals for myself. Like, all right, hopefully I can get to, I think my goal at, on January 1st, 2020 was let's get to a thousand people by the end of the year. Then COVID hits like, let's get to 5,000 people at the end of the year. And then the goals kind of kept falling and it kept growing. And so then like at some point in the summer, I realized that this is probably what I want to do full time. And so my wife was like, all right, you need to start monetizing this thing. And so then I figured out like, could I, you know, should I go paid or should I go sponsor? And if I go sponsor, how do I do that? So just put together a deck and tweeted that out and got sponsorship interest. And so it's been a, a series of like, none of this was intentional and I never set out to be a professional newsletter writer, but each step along the way, I think even as kind of the the list grows, cooler and cooler opportunities open up. And now I feel like I'm in a, a spot where I get to do this thing that I really like doing and have all this serendipity with no real plan. Yeah, I love it. It's fun to see how that's grown. It's crazy that, so what, in, in 10 or 11 months, you're up 30,000 subscribers? Is that right? Something like that, yeah. Up to 33,000 now. Yeah, okay it's it's just crazy how fast uh newsletters can grow and we were talking about our, our mutual friend mario who's going to come on the podcast a little later you know he's grown incredibly fast and, and it's just sort of this thing of when you're putting out great content then there's not really a ceiling on how how fast or, or how high the newsletter can grow totally and i think mario is such a good example of one of my favorite like kind of meta hacks, which is just experiment a ton. He, over the past year, has tried so many different formats, has brought in a bunch of different collaborators, you know, switch, made the switch before a lot of people, which I think is coming from Substack over to ConvertKit, and like did all of these things first. And I think more than even actually what you try, just trying new things is such a valuable thing to do in growing, uh, in growing a newsletter. So he's been so much fun to watch. Yeah, that's great. Um, so in that process, right, we're talking about adding... 33,000 subscribers in a year. What are some of the things that have worked? So, I mean, it's really, frankly, most of that has just come from people sharing the newsletter, which has been great. Like my main two toolkits are spending a ton of time writing and then tweeting about it. And that's like really most of the plan. In the beginning, when I was at like 500 and figuring out how to get to a thousand, I made a list of a hundred different things that I wanted to try. I tried a few of them. I actually had a friend who was leaving his cushy job come and help me for a little while. And we did a few things like put together a referral program, which is good, but a lot of effort. Um, we launched on Product Hunt, which was huge. I was at a thousand subscribers. Then we launched on Product Hunt, just put together like a very simple landing page just as an excuse to go on Product Hunt. That got to, I think, 2000 plus people in a few days. So went from 1200 nice. to 3200 just from that Product Hunt thing. And then from there, the biggest thing was, you know, even when it was, I think 200 people probably, I started saying like, 
all right, I'm at 200 people. Here's the chart. Like next week, I'd love to be at 210 people. And I think just being that kind of open with everybody from the time that it was very small has just built this feeling that we're all in it together, which is totally true because none of this growth happens without people responding, giving feedback and sharing and all of those types of things. So that's really been, frankly, the big thing. I know community is an overused word and, and certainly like this is more, I guess, technically an audience in a community because I don't have a Slack group and I don't have any of that. But all of the growth has come from people reading and, and talking about it and sharing. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I love the way that you're inviting people along for the journey. Like so many people take like a, I am the expert. I will teach you things as the audience, you know, or, or that sort of thing. And I've just always loved it when someone says like, Hey, I'm a guy I'm trying to get from here to there. <laughs> you know, if you want to subscribe, that'd be great. If you tell your friends that would help me hit this next milestone. And I mean, I did that in the very early days of ConvertKit where uh, it actually started with what I called the web, the web app challenge which was trying to get to from zero to $5,000 in MRR in six months and like blogging the whole way along. Didn't hit the goal, you know, in the short term, but it worked out in the long run. Um, and I, I just think that more creators could bring their audience along for the journey. Um, and I, it's, it's great. Totally. And I think a huge part of this too is like, you know, I saw people that I thought were just these like gods, right? Gods and goddesses who had big audiences and, and you know, were always in the conversation on Twitter and got hundreds of likes on everything they did. And I was like, I doubt I'm ever going to get there. But in case, like, let me just kind of timestamp all of this stuff. Because if it works, then, you know, I can show people that I'm a random idiot sitting in a basement somewhere writing a newsletter. Like, you could also be a random idiot doing this thing that you want to do, whether it's writing a newsletter or doing something else. I think it's so cool to be able to just kind of timestamp everything along the journey to show that this is not some like mystical thing that happens. It's just about putting in the work over time and having fun with it and finding something that you really like doing, I think. Yeah. And I think the approach that you've taken with the content of, you know, making the switch from just like, here's the things that I've read recently to actually doing, you know, long form essays, trying to make them not boring. Um, I think that's, that's paid off really well. Are there, I want to hear more about your writing process. Right. So you're publishing twice a week. Is that right? Publishing twice a week now. That was kind of accidental at some point. I was, you know, so I write every Monday. I write kind of like my feature essay of the week. Typically, it's about a big public company. Sometimes it's about a broader trend. So today's piece on valuations was about a broader trend. But last week was Twitter. There's a Slack piece of Facebook. There's a bunch of just deep dives on a company. And then on Thursday, probably you know, six months ago, I was like, maybe it'd be nice if I do go sponsored at some point to have a second spot. And I want to be able yep. to bring other people into the process. And I want to experiment and all of these different things. So I opened up a Thursday that I really thought was going to be like, maybe once a month, I have a guest or something else. And those have filled up. So Thursdays, I do uh, investment memos on startups that we're investing in through the syndicate. So Not Boring now has a syndicate that invests in startups together. Uh, or sponsored deep dives, which is a company will pay me money to write up the company. And that's a fun one to dive into too. And I think goes pairs nicely with kind of letting people in on the process the whole time. And, and my thought process on like, obviously I could be writing something that I don't believe in here or whatever, because they're paying me a lot of money. So you need to really trust that I'm only choosing companies that I actually would write about anyway, even if they right. weren't paying me and then I'm writing honestly about it and all of that. So Thursdays are mainly those two things. And then sometimes I'll have a guest post. So this past Thursday, I had Dan Turan, who was the CEO of Managed by Q, uh, write a piece on third-party food delivery and, and 
kind of like the impact on restaurants that we've seen over COVID from restaurants having to pay 30% of their profits to third-party delivery companies and or their revenues, I guess, and, and what that does to their economics and what a better way forward is. And so Thursday still is kind of this experimental thing, but mostly is, uh, you know, investment memos and, and deep dives. So yeah, so it ends up being a ton of writing. <laughs> it's like, you know, I'm writing probably 10,000 words a week, which is not something that I thought I'd ever be capable of. So. <laughs> well, I mean, like this, the first thing when people talk about, Oh, I want to, I want to start a newsletter. You know, maybe they want the Twitter engagement. Maybe they want to be one of those gods or goddesses that they look up to. And I'm always asking them like, one, that's amazing. Two, you're totally capable of it. Three, do you know just how much writing is involved in that? Like just to set the stage, like, you're signing up to be a writer as your profession. And sometimes they're like, yes, absolutely. I have this background in journalism or whatever else. Like I can nail it. And other times they're like, oh, okay. I thought that the polished thing was just what you, you know, like that was the process. Totally. Yeah. You remember essays that you had to write in college? Like imagine doing that, like a final paper twice a week now. And that's, that's what it is. I, I was talking to somebody uh, on Twitter the other day, somebody that I quoted in my piece today and we we're just kind of talking and he had to write something for a job interview. And he was like, man, like, I really thought this newsletter thing was cushy until I had to write one thing for a job interview. And I was like, oh, man, this is really, really hard to do. Yeah. Uh, it's it's fun to see how uh, like so many people develop that muscle, though, because it is just a muscle. Um, I think, you know, we put a lot of great writers on pedestals and that's because uh, they've done the work. They've learned how to do it. It's it's you know, it is really difficult. But at the same time. I think it's pretty approachable. And I, I think people like you and I prove that, look, if you're going to sit down and, and put in the time, you can put out content, you know, not going to win a Nobel prize for it, but Whoa. a lot of people are going. To. Yeah. Sorry. I, I didn't mean to. Crush I need to dreams. readjust my goals now. I think uh, the Nobel, yeah. Nobel prize was, was really what I was after with this, this whole thing. But I think you're absolutely right. Right. Like it is about sitting at your computer for hours and hours and hours every week and making sure that you're getting it right. And that you're finding the right angle. I think so. Work is the number one piece of it. I would say the other thing that you need to do is find something that you actually care about writing about and not fake it. Because I think it's impossible to put in the work if you're not interested by the things that you're writing in. So you can probably fake it for a little while. But I think it really like comes through when the writer is really interested in the things that they're writing about. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, what's more of your process on research or stories that you put together, you know, I talked to someone when I'm asking purely for myself because I'm trying to figure out even more of my system, right? I hang out with someone like Ryan holiday and he has this crazy like note cards, you know, in folders and all, you know, as he's writing all these books and I'm like, I have Apple notes with an assortment of random ideas that I jot down in there. And sometimes they make their way from like idea to rough draft and, and on from there. But I'm curious what, what your process is. Yeah, you're more organized than I am. So I, I, I use I use Rome because I think that you're supposed to. Um, yep. And that at some point, like all of my backlinks are going to start coming together. And like my mind is just going to start work, like humming. My second brain, I guess, is going to start humming here once once my Rome starts working together. But frankly, I have like something called not boring ideas where I put in you know a new tag whenever I have an idea. I think maybe once I've gone back to that list, it's probably like 35 ideas long. And so I'm like, okay, cool. Like I have this backlog of things that I might want to write about. And then every week on call it Wednesday for a Monday essay, I'm like, all right, let's go look at the list. Like what should I write about this week? And they all end up 
kind of seeming stale. And so every Wednesday or Thursday, I sit there like panic thinking, I have no idea. I've, I've written about every company that I'm interested in. I've written about every trend that I'm interested in. Like, I, I think Monday is the day that like, I'm just not going to have anything to say. And so at some point there, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. I see something that interests me or I'm reading something else. I see something that interests me. I wonder if I have a unique angle to take on that thing. And then if I do, I set up two kind of uh, Google Docs. I set up like the you know V1 draft doc and I set up the outline doc. And I probably dump a few links in some, some in Rome and then some in the Google Docs. And they're all over the place and there's nothing kind of special about it. And then I'll try to do an outline and I'll probably get like four bullets into the outline. And then I'm like, ah, I'm just going to start writing. And then I start kind of just writing the piece and hammering it out and doing a lot of the research kind of on the fly, exactly how you're not supposed to do it. If they were teaching this in college where they'd say like, look at all the evidence first and then like figure out if there is an argument to be made there or not. Like certainly looking for confirmatory evidence, but also I'll ask like smart people around me who know more about the subject than I do. Like if I'm totally crazy on this or if there's actually something there and really look for, you know, things that will disconfirm what I'm thinking as well. Um, and certainly just cause I'm maybe a coward, like we'll caveat the hell out of things that I'm not certain on as I'm, as I'm writing them, then, you know, like there's this panic and ecstasy and whatever the whole kind of Wednesday through Sunday. Again, if you, if you want to really get a newsletter writing, like I have not, I've taken one day off, I think in the past year that I've been doing this full time because every Saturday, every Sunday, uh, I'm just kind of like sitting there writing, um, and then, you know, at some point I'll have a draft that I don't feel terribly embarrassed sending to my brother and my wife. My wife, her job as editor is to kind of say like, you know, this was interesting to read or like you do not have this yet. And my brother's is to be a younger brother and just totally rip apart what I've written and tell me when I sound like I'm too full of it or whatever throughout the, the paper. And then also like grammatical stuff um, or things that I've missed or different things. Like luckily he's also, he works at a company called Parade. Uh, so he's also kind of in the startup space and so he like knows also the material and the conversation that's going on. And so it can really help there. He'll do that. Meanwhile, like half the time, I'm probably in Figma just making terrible graphics because they help me think through things as well. I throw it all together, dump it in Substack. On Monday morning, I do another read. I'm like, this is good or this is terrible. I don't know. Try to make some last edits, record an audio version of it and hit send by like 8.55 in a cold sweat every every Monday morning and then do the same thing on Thursday. And then just rinse and repeat every week. Just every week. Yeah. I'm actually 12, but I look 34 because <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. aged me. Um, what do you think about, like, there's this thing with newsletters that I think everyone should be aware of is sort of this hamster wheel that you can get on and that you have to be, I don't know if it's careful of, but maybe just know what you're signing up for. You know, we always talk about the incredible upsides of, growing the subscriber base. We'll get into revenue and business models in a second. Um, and, and the upsides are phenomenal, but one of the downsides is that, you know, you are showing up, you've spent all of your weekends, you know, or at least consistently every weekend for a while, right. Of working on these posts. And so I'm curious how you think about those trade-offs and if you're looking towards systems to try to improve that in the future. Yeah. It's, I mean, thankfully I have an incredibly patient, wife, we just had a baby. So that adds another level of complexity and, and, right. you know, happiness and all the great things to it as well. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I really genuinely enjoy doing this, so I don't mind it. It's more about thinking about the other people in my life and being like, I wonder if they mind that I've been in the basement for the past seven days, just writing and 
chances are they probably do. But the good thing is, you know, there are times throughout this process that I have nothing, you know, like I'm just sitting there and I'm blank and I can go hang out with the baby for three hours in the middle of a Wednesday, which is really, really cool. Or, you know, go to dinner with my wife and not kind of have a set schedule, knowing other than the fact that I know that Sunday I'm going to be totally panicked and spending all day writing throughout the rest of the week. It can be a little bit more all over the place. My wife and I keep having this debate about whether or not I'm inefficient. And like, certainly like she's in operation. She's the most hyper-efficient person in the whole world. Whereas I'm like, certainly spend a lot of time just kind of scrolling Twitter, but I can, I think when you're a writer, you can really justify an awful lot. as like working or research or whatever yes. else. And I, I lean on that because I'm like, what do you expect? I'm an artist. Like I, I, I can't just sit down at a keyboard and just type on, on, on demand. Um, so, you know, there's a little bit of that. And so I, it never feel like, oh man, I just worked, you know, I was in investment banking out of school. It never feels like that where I feel like I'm just stuck to something and I have to be there and put in the FaceTime. It's really like, I really like doing this and it's a little bit flexible. It's all on me. You know, it's all on yourself, which I think is, is one of the good or bad things about this is like, there's no one else to blame. There's not a boss that is making you do anything. Um, the downside obviously is you can let that, that run away in terms of systems. I keep making excuses for myself there too, where I'm like, I don't know, I'd love to, you know, hire an intern. I think it'd be really fun to have an intern, but I don't know what I would have them do because like, like I said, I sit down on Thursday with no idea what I'm going to write about. And so I can't tell somebody to pre-research so much of the research happens in the process. Or if I get an idea as I'm in the middle of a sentence and I go look something up. So it's really hard to plug somebody into that. So mm -hmm. I would love to put systems in place around this. And at some point I'll have to, but for now I kind of like, you know, just the rawness of, going for it every week. Well, I think it comes through like the rawness combined with the interest and excitement comes through in the writing, you know, and that's what makes it exciting. And I think there's probably a version where you can be like, we have planned out our content schedule three months ahead and, you know, all of these things and every article is perfectly researched and all of this, you know, and wh whatever else. And people would be like, Packy, I don't mean to say anything bad, but this latest one was a little bit boring. You know, and then you'd be like, hey, totally, <laughs> you know, so this way we can guarantee that it lives up to the name. Totally. I mean, doing it this way, at least you can piggyback on a lot of the things that are happening. And so I think that's part of the growth thing too, is, is just being in kind of the conversation and knowing like, oh, wow, this week people really care about Twitter because they acquired review uh, and they're yep. launching spaces and they're like maybe making this play for the creator economy. And I kind of wrote that they should do this a bunch of months ago. So like now feels like a time for me to jump in and do this, this piece. And so I think having that flexibility allows me to like do something that people I know at least like are kind of going to be interested in because they've been talking about it a lot that past week. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, another side effect that we see, well, so, a, a, um, another newsletter author, um, who's, she's going to come on the podcast later. Um, Legion, she had this line about, uh, how her paid newsletter, um, is her, is her like LP update list. Right, of talking about how as an investor, you know, she has this newsletter that um, is generating, you know, deal flow and revenue and, and all of that. I just love the line. Um, but I'm curious how, you know, as, as you've been investing and starting a syndicate and all of that, how the newsletter has played into that. Yeah. So Lee and I were actually just having this conversation a couple of days ago about how investing and writing are just like two antithetical processes. They work really well together. The results work really well together, but the processes are so different, right? Where writing, you want to be sitting down with a bunch of time to just think and not have a bunch of meetings. 
And then the investing side, you always want to be meeting people and helping those companies in any way that you can once you have invested. And it's like this very kind of unstructured time where if somebody's like, yep, yeah, we're we're raising around and we're closing on Friday. And can you meet and diligence it and put it up on AngelList and do all of this in the next three hours? Like, I'm going to figure out how to make it happen, but it totally jams that like kind of two day window that I've given myself for the writing. So from a process perspective, they do not work together at all. But from a results perspective, like I have no business being an investor, having anybody kind of trust me on my startup investing ideas. I've probably done, you know, between the syndicate and personal investments over the past six months, 12 investments. Like I'm not an experienced venture investor, but because I've been writing for the past year, twice a week and like putting my thoughts out there, people have a pretty good kind of corpus of the way that I think about things. And so they can think, all right, Packy like probably has thought through this in a similar way to all the other things that he's thought through. And so either I think that's stupid and I'm not going to invest with him because it's out there and I think he's an idiot or, you know, at least like know the way that he thinks and I appreciate the way that he thinks. And so I'm sure that he's thought through this one. The other benefit of this for the company is because wouldn't that boring? I'm pretty nakedly commercial about the whole thing. It's a little meta where we write about business, but then like really building this business and I hate to use building in public, but building this thing in public where like, like I said, I can write these sponsored deep dives and, and people actually really enjoy them because I try to write them the same way that I write a normal piece, write an investment memo where 90% of the value that I'm probably going to add to a company that I invest in comes on day zero before I, you know, even put any money into the company. Cause I'm like, look, I'll send out an investment memo on your company if I'm excited about it to a list of 33,000 people who are all in tech and finance. And so you'll probably find some hires. You'll probably find other investors. You'll definitely find customers. And that's a huge part of the value is just being able to help the company tell their story up front. So from that perspective, I wouldn't get into half the deals that I've been able to get into if I weren't writing. And half is maybe being generous. Like maybe I wouldn't have gotten into any. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to see so many uh, angel investors, venture capitalists see writing and building a newsletter as like one of the most effective forms of deal flow. And like online, a lot of what we're doing is just trying to to, um, to gather attention, right? So we're, we're putting out articles, we're put you know essays, um, Nike's putting out ads, all these things, right? We're we're putting out our best version of content so that we can get attention. And then it's what what can you channel that attention into that has you know the most enjoyment for you and the highest return, and like you know that's where people joke that Nike is an advertising company that just happens to sell shoes because they found that that was more profitable than you know like being the next Wyden Kennedy and just making ads for other people. Now that's apocryphal. That's not actually how Nike came to be, but um, you know that's how I think about it, and so when you have this attention, you could monetize it through sponsorships, through paid products. Um, or as you know, a lot of investors, like I, I always read Tomas Tungas from Redpoint and he's had this newsletter going for a long time. It's totally free. All these things. He's not launching a paid newsletter because he's like the deal flow into Redpoint is the highest possible return that I could get. And so I think it's amazing to see, you know, like angel investors like you and I be able to do the same. Totally. I mean, it's, it's been fascinating too, where I, that's one of the main reasons that I want to keep this open is because it does just kind of create the surface area for opportunity and for new people reading it who might be starting a company or want to share a deal that might be interesting or, or all of those things. But even the sponsorship itself, 
has helped me find investments. So companies that have sponsored deep dives then raise around. And now I know the story and I'm really familiar with the company and I know the people on the team because we work together on the thing. And so either I try to get the syndicate in or if I can only write a personal check, then I'll do that. But even just like that, the sponsorship piece is also great at generating deal flow. So the whole thing just seems to work together really nicely. And I don't know, I, I don't want to think too deeply about the business model beyond this because what's happening is working and I'm sure other things that feel natural. And, you know, I think the number one thing is like, keep the audience trust and keep them engaged and keep writing good stuff. And if I can find other ways to monetize that fit with that, awesome. But I don't know, we can talk about, you know, the sponsorship thing versus paid. But one of the most fascinating things to me is that like consumer sponsors have come, uh, like let's call it, you know, a, a hat brand and that's not, an actual sponsor. But if a hat brand comes, I'll actually sell fewer units or get fewer clicks to that hat than I would to a $2,000 a month SaaS product, like just by number of actual orders that have gone through. And so figuring out kind of like what people actually care about then allows me to kind of build the monetization around the content that people want to read. Yeah. Well, I want to dive into this more because um, for a long time, people have monetized newsletters by selling products. Um, and sponsorships. Um, but then in the last, say, 18 months or two years, paid newsletters have really had this rise. And, you know, you were on Twitter last week talking about like, yeah, sure, that's awesome. But I think sponsorship is a really underrated um, method. And so as you think about it, like you could launch a paid newsletter right now, it would do very well. Um, you would have that recurring revenue. Um, and so I'm curious, you know, like make the case, why, why are you staying with sponsors? So I ran the math when I was thinking, when I kind of hit 5,000, which was like my, I'll get to 5,000 and then I'll figure out monetization. So I started thinking about it then, didn't monetize till 10,000, but I was like, all right, cool. So I'm at 5,000. Substack says that you can probably get 10% of your audience to convert. I've never met anybody who's converted 10% of their, their readers to paid. So let's say it's five. So if I get 5%, then I'm at 5,000 times 5%. I have 250 people subscribing. And if they pay me, I don't know, even if generously they pay me $10 a month, then I'm at $2,500 a month. And all of a sudden, either I need to find like three more days in the week to write that paid piece, or I'm putting something behind a paywall. And so this growth that has been like the most fun part of this newsletter from, you know, it was more of like a game kind of than a business when I was just trying to grow it from 1000 to 5000 I never thought I'd actually make money on this thing. Um, so at that point, I was like, what am I going to shut off the growth or not sleep and write a th another piece and the, co the quality of all of them will probably suffer from adding anything more. So we'll be in a spot where I'm making $2,500 a month, growing more slowly, not having people share and talk about it, not opening up that surface area to other potential opportunities. It just like, you know, it'd be a, maybe a nice side thing if I weren't putting as much effort into it, but that's not, I, I can't feed a family on $2,500 a month. Um, whereas, you know, once I hit 10,000, I, I sent out a deck on the sponsorship side and filled up, this was end of August, pretty much from a tweet thread filled up the rest of the year, uh, in terms oh, of, wow. of sponsors and like did no sales efforts. So like, that's one of the downsides of, of doing sponsorships is that if there's not that kind of pull, then you have to like go out into the market and cold email people. And that takes more time. It's a painful process. And I really like marketing, I guess, more than sales. I like just putting something out there and seeing what comes back versus having to ask anybody for anything. I'm, I'm petrified of, of that. Um, so, you know, filled up the, to the end of the year, I was like, cool, I'm at least like making money and can prove to my wife that 
there is a path here if I start bringing in some money. And then that started working really well and sponsors started telling other sponsors. And so this year, you know, there's really like three formats that, that I do for sponsorships. I have my kind of Monday top of newsletter sponsorship. I have my Thursday top of newsletter sponsorship. And I do different rates for the two of them because Mondays typically get shared a little bit more than the Thursday pieces do. And then, as I mentioned, I have the Thursday deep dives. And so with the three of those, I'm now, you know, at least my run rate is more than I was making as an exec at a startup that had raised $100 million and also have the investing piece of kind of like recreated a really good startup comp package through the syndicate and through the sponsorships. Well, that's interesting. I hadn't thought that you have both the salary replaced. And then of course you, you know, you own a hundred percent of, you know, your, your new media business. Um, but you also have the equity side covered because uh, you've got the syndicate and the other investing. Exactly. And again, this was like, you know, it could seem in hindsight that there was some plan where I was like, I'm going to synthetically recreate a startup compensation package, but it was really halfway through. I had spoken to a friend of mine who was launching a company uh, and trying to raise money and, and wanted help telling his story. And so we experimented with me sending out an investment memo and sent the demand to somebody else and it worked. And so, you know, decided to start the syndicate and then halfway through, I'd probably three deals in, I was like, wow, this is actually kind of like I have equity and I'm making money on the sponsorship. This is kind of like, you know, what I was making before. And so now it's kind of growing past there, which is, which is great. And the fun thing about it is there's not upside. Like I don't have to go to my boss in a year and say like, all right, you know, it's, it's, the new year, can I get a 3%, 8%, whatever raise? It's, it is it is a direct result of how quickly the newsletter grows and how effective it is for sponsors. Yeah, that makes sense. So what are you charging for those different sponsorship slots? Yeah, for Q1, uh, Mondays are 5,000, Thursdays are 3,000, and th- Thursday kind of top sponsorship is 3,000, and the deep dive is 20,000, because that's a ton of work and I think really good exposure for, for those companies. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so you're pulling in a significant amount of money from this. Yeah, I mean, like I'll, I'll do, I'll you know, I'll do package discounts on some of this stuff and and all that. But you know, a good month would be thirty. So far, a good month is yeah. like thirty, forty, uh, and like I said, growing. So that that part is awesome. Now, there's you know, it's also no cost, but there really should be. As I said, I should probably hire somebody and build an actual website and do all of these things. So there should be the cost side. But right now, it's kind of like. The only cost is the fact that I'm spending 60 hours a week writing and then doing the other stuff on top that I love it. So that part's great. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just like a startup job and the fact that you've got the crazy long hours and, uh, you know, a questionable boss, just in this case, the boss is you. <laughs> a crazy boss. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, that's interesting. So I, I think you're underplaying the numbers that you would get from a paid newsletter. Like, I think they would be higher than what you what you threw out there. But I don't think they'd be higher than what you're making off the sponsorships. Like I, I think I agree. I, I, I and I think I'm more confident. I think you get twenty thousand recurring. Twenty thousand recurring. I think yeah. So. I think at this point with thirty three thousand people, I, I could. I could also do like a more premium price point now because like you know I get the comment a lot, which is like. You know, like you said, I've made money on some of the things you've written. This is, you know, I'd rather read this than an equity research report and all of those right. types of things. So I could do maybe like $100 a month sponsorship that a few people decided to subscribe to. There's a bunch of different ways to take it. But again, the, the big bottleneck right now is time. And the main source of enjoyment is having people kind of share and discuss the things that I'm writing and like have this conversation happen around the things that I 
care about and get to talk to smart people about them. So I think the combination of the fact that it would be a little bit less than I'm making on the sponsorship side uh, and the fact that it would slow growth, I think those two things combined just make me want to lean away from that and into the, the sponsorship plus because Substack charges a cut on sponsorships and not on sponsorships because they don't want to, you know, they, they want to ignore the fact that sponsorships exist. It's actually from, from a cost perspective, pretty good. Yeah. I mean, you're saving 10%. Um, yeah. Plus stripe fees. Right there. Plus stripe fees. Yeah. That is true. Um, something else that is interesting with your sponsorships is a lot of people, when they start entirely free and then go into sponsorships, they're like weirdly apologetic about it. Of like, oh, we'll get to the content really soon. Like, I'm sorry that, you know, like, sorry for this interruption or whatever else. And you're just like, boom, sponsor right across the top. <laughs> Let's start with sponsor. You know, and like, you're not apologetic at all. Um, and you've built that into the the brand. Was that intentional? Yeah. I mean, I think that comes with this whole thing of like, I don't know, guys, you want to all see if I can grow this thing together and like help out maybe if, if you want. And then the next one was like, I do have a baby on the way and like a family. And so like, I'd love to make money on this. And so I sent out, you know, before I, I got the first sponsor, I sent out a survey and said, I'm doing this because I want sponsorship and they want to know about you. Um, and so that worked. I've chosen sponsors for the most part, for the entire part that like I actually think the audience would care to know about. And so like, you know, I got really lucky that Public was one of the sponsors, the the you know, trading app. And then they've had this meteoric rise over the past few months. They were all over the Robin Hood debacle, like the whole thing. So such a fun sponsor to get to be associated with. They keep sending me cool gear that I'm like very proud to wear. And so I don't know, like as long as I'm choosing sponsors that I think the audience actually cares about, then I, I don't feel bad about it uh, at all. And I'm trying to write copy that, you know, that, that, um, the sponsor is happy with, but the people actually enjoy. And so put it kind of in the same voice as the, as the newsletter. Um, so all of that kind of works well. The one that I was a little bit apologetic about was the deep dives. Cause like, that is really just like, you know, if I, I never pretended to be a journalist, I don't want to be a journalist, but like if I went to journalism school, they would pull away my diploma for saying like, yeah, <laughs> you can pay me $20,000 and I'll write a piece on the company. But I'm like, from day one on those, I was like, here's how this works. Either, I do a CPM where they essentially pay me because there's a bunch of you here, or I do a CPA where they pay only if you click on something and sign up for something. Uh, and so like each time I do it, I'll tell you which one it is. I'm not going to pressure sell you into anything, but like just know that this is how I'm getting paid on this one. And then a couple, of, uh, one deep dive ago, I just wrote up my process and put it in a Google Doc and shared it with everybody on how I choose the companies and what I'll write about and how the writing process is with them behind the scenes and what I will and won't say and like that I won't just get paid to talk shit on competitors or like any of those things that it's really like, please don't tell these sponsors that I'm writing about something that I care about and would write about anyway. And they're paying me all this money for it because like, that's what I wanted to come across as. So I'll do, you know, I, I'm bad and I, I'd love tips on how to just manage my own email as someone who puts a lot of email out into the universe, like between email and DMs, like I get a ton of inbound requests, particularly for the deep dives. Like that's another one where even though it's a higher price point, I get more demand for that than I do for a Monday or a Thursday sponsorship. But I'll just, if it's a company that I don't think people are going to care about, I'll just kind of ignore them. And then, it, you know, it, which is bad. Um, but I just like, I, I'm overwhelmed by the, by the inboxes and all sorts of different places between Twitter and mail and text and whatever else. Um, 
So one screen is just that I'm an asshole and I'll, I'll just not respond to people if I don't think the audience is going to be interested. And then two, there's plenty of conversations that I'll have with companies where I'm like, frankly, I think like you'd be a really interesting Monday or Thursday sponsor, but is your company doing anything like different that would be cool to write about and it would be worth three or 4,000 words? And some companies are like, no, totally. Like we're a very straightforward business and I completely understand that you wouldn't want to write 4,000 words on what we're up to and like maybe we'll come back and talk if you have a product launch or something coming up. But otherwise, like I think that's helped that they're very clearly companies that I would have written about anyway. Like you're not going to see a State Farm Insurance yeah. sponsorship probably sponsored deep dive anytime soon. And they're probably on the more interesting side. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I love kind of bringing things full circle with the like working in public, sharing the journey, bringing people along for it, and then that allowing you to actually generate more revenue because then your whole audience is like, I love that he's got these sponsorships and that, you know, he's putting them front and center. Uh, I love these brands are supporting, you know, my favorite newsletter. And, and it's completely the opposite of like what a lot of people get of like, Oh, he's a sellout or any of these other things. And it's just goes to show if you bring the audience along for the journey, then they're in your corner. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Like this one, and I'll give them a plug, even though it's not going to, this, this might not air until after I, I write it, but I'm writing about this company. Alto IRA on, on Thursday. And they essentially let you set up a self-directed uh, IRA, which means that you can do all sorts of things that like, I know that people who read not and care about, which is take your 401k money, which is just sitting in like a mutual fund somewhere and invest it through Angelus, invest it into crypto, invest it into masterworks, which I've written about and invest it into all these different things that I've already written about. And so like, that one is a an absolute no-brainer because we have a syndicate on Angelus. We've written about master, like all these things just kind of like come together. And so I think that's the other fun part about writing about things, even on the sponsor side that I care about, is that that then attracts other kind of like companies. So, you know, they came in when they saw a piece on Masterworks. And so it all just feels, I think, very natural because it is very natural. Yeah, that makes sense. Something else that you've been doing uh, that I find interesting is you record the audio version of each article and you, you release those as a separate post. And that's, I guess I've seen a few people doing that where they have, you know, a related podcast or something. Um, when did you start doing that? And, uh, and what, what drove that? So my pieces are really long, right? Like compared to a normal piece, the, the main feedback I got when I was doing these like one to 2000 word links pieces was like, oh man, these are really way too long. You should cut down even from one to 2000. And then I went the total opposite way. And I, I wrote, a, I think, a 9,000 word piece on Facebook. And the average length is like 6,000 words. And so I think it's only fair to people who want to consume the content that there's an easier way where you can just throw some AirPods in and listen to it for half an hour instead of like trying to schedule time in your calendar on Monday morning to, to read not boring. So that's, that's the genesis of it. It is truly painful that most Monday mornings I'm getting up Right now I'm in Miami, we have our own place. I woke the baby up, took, kicked him out of his room and recorded in here this morning. But normally it's in my in-laws basement where we've been living for the past few months since we had the baby. And like, I'm just praying that like the water heater doesn't turn on or that like somebody doesn't run the water upstairs or like that something doesn't mess, mess up the audio. So it's like really painful to wake up at six every Monday morning and do this. But it's also opened up this thing now where like, I just kind of have a podcast. And it's like this thing that, seemed hard to do before that just because I hit play and published on Anchor, now I have like kind of the script Anchor. I got my Yeti microphone over here. Like I have a little setup. And so now, you know, if I'm writing about a company, I can 
invite the CEO or somebody on the team on and just have a quick conversation. I really like that about audio, that it's so easy to just kind of work with. I think for the podcast, the audio version, and for the writing itself, like part of the reason I've been able to do it is that I don't care about it being perfect. Like I want it to be right, but I don't care about it being perfect. And so like the audio quality sucks. Like if you listen to the audio quality on my podcast compared to anybody else, it's terrible, but I'd rather just kind of get started. And then at some point, like I'm starting to talk to audio editors now who can help fix that. Maybe they can't fix the, you know, the hissing from the the water heater, but can fix a lot of it and professionalize it. But I think the, the biggest thing is just like getting over the hump and getting started. And a lot of that stuff is easier than it would seem to just dive in and do. Yeah. I, I think that's a, the right approach of whether it's writing or audio is to, to start and then improve over time. Cause the hardest thing is showing up and doing it consistently. And then everything else is like optimizations on that continual effort. Totally. Yeah. Um, okay. What else should we talk about? We, we get into platforms. You, I mean, you write about platforms all the time. So I'm, I'm curious for your take on the, the newsletter platform space. Um, I'm obviously, you know, full disclosure as we come into the conversation, I'm a little bit biased in that I own one of these platforms. <laughs> um, you know, we, you and I, both talk on Twitter extensively. They now own review. Um, I'm, I'm curious for your take on on newsletter platforms as a whole and and where all this is going. Yes, I've been on Substack the whole time. Could not be more grateful to Substack, like I said, because I do a sponsor model and they ignore sponsorships. I've paid $0 for the they platform. It it's free. I paid $0 for the platform on top of which I've built this business, which I am eternally grateful for. I now have my own custom domain at notboring.co. So like, like they're making improvements and, and it's, it's nice. Um, I think from a, like putting my analyst hat on perspective, they're in such a tough, tricky spot. They have so many different types of writers on the platform who all want different things and who are all looking at the other types of writers. And so obviously over the past year, they've made a big push to bring on people who are journalists or MBA stars or who have kind of existing audiences and bring them onto the platform and do all sorts of sweetheart deals where you're getting, you know, libel insurance and maybe health insurance and you're getting a legal staff and you're definitely not paying 10% if you're coming on and they're pulling you over from the New York Times or somewhere else. And so there's these like bespoke deals happening that the next class of people, which I'd kind of put myself in, which are like people who've kind of built an audience there who are more like the business analyst type who are annoying and loud and like like me kind of pontificating on what Substack should do, even though I'm not there building the company. And like, we all see that that's happening. And so always kind of gripe about the fact that there's this 10% fee and that everybody's going to leave. But I think that's true. And I think like another really interesting wrinkle there is that, you know, Ben Thompson's written about this. I think Benedict Evans has that, that, you know, what they need to do is solve for discovery and help people build their audience if they want to keep them on platform and, and keep people from leaking once they've hit, you know, 10,000 paid subscribers or whatever that number is, where the math no longer makes sense. And I think that's really tough because I don't think, and you know this better than I would having more of a bird's eye view, but I don't think people necessarily want newsletters, right? Like I don't think people very often go to substack.com slash discover and they're like, ah, I'd love to find a new newsletter to read because my the 37 that I get right now like aren't quite doing it for me. And I'm looking for that 38 that I think is going to do it. And so I, I think they're in a tough spot in terms of bringing in new demand. And so then otherwise what you're doing is like kind of pulling you know the limited hours and attention that each 
reader has to different places if you're trying to solve discovery for the readers that you have on your platform. And so in the beginning, when I had 2000 followers or subscribers, like I was like, yes, I would love if Substack helped me solve discovery. And now I'm kind of like, I think I'm in like the top 10 free, like, do I want them sending attention to other people? Cause like they only have so many hours in the week and I don't, maybe, they, maybe they don't solve this discovery thing and I'm happier that way. And so I, I think they have like all of those kind of tensions up and down the stack that are going to make it really, really tough. They're doing an amazing job. Obviously they reported numbers that are great and people are making a ton of money on the platform. And so all of that's great. They're hugely responsible for this boom and for what I'm doing myself. And so like really, really grateful and, and have enjoyed writing on it, but I think they're in a really tough spot. I'm interested to see how it works out long-term. Yeah, it'll be interesting. The, the discovery thing is fascinating because I agree with um, what you're saying or you know, quoting Ben Thompson and others talking about, like I think that's where they have to provide value in order to retain people long-term. It's a problem that like I have my notebook right here of like lots of time spent on is how can you solve this? Is, is it a way that it can be solved? Like looking to companies like Shopify and others that have found this balance between um, you own your brand entirely, you know, all of this. Oh, but you want a network effect with Shopify pay or shop pay, you know, and they're pulling off some of these little things. And that's what I'm fascinated with. Of like, could we do that with ConvertKit? Um, also, you know, just playing around with clubhouse the last week or so seeing the audience sizes that people are, generating like you'll see someone on clubhouse who has an audience 20 times the size of their Twitter following. And they've been building Twitter for like 10 years and then clubhouse for five weeks or 10 weeks, you know, and how is that possible? Is there a mechanism that you could create in newsletters that could allow for audience growth of that size? And, and I just don't know. (laughs) So it's fascinating to look at. I mean, I wrote about this last week. I think Twitter is in, you know, please Twitter product team, get this one right. But I think Twitter is in a really interesting spot here where they actually have a lot of people, like I'd say probably of their, you know, 190 uh, monetizable daily active users or whatever they call them, like a hundred million of them probably actually want to consume newsletters. Like it's a very kind of intellectual uh, DAU set. And so they have this like thing where they know the tweets that you like, they know who you follow, they know all of these things, they know what topics you're interested in, they made a big push around topics. And so could they push you to another newsletter or could they do a better job of alerting you that somebody that you follow actually wrote this longer form thing? And I bet, you know, you like the last 10 of their tweets. I bet you'd love to read their their thing and subscribe and all of that. Who knows if you can trust the Twitter product team? Historically, I think it's actually, it seems like it's better now, but historically you would not have been able to trust the Twitter product team to get this right. Maybe now you can, but then to like turn those people into, you know, Twitter spaces, people so you can have the conversation. I really do think they have this really interesting ecosystem that's not zero sum discovery wise, but I think, you know, I think otherwise it's, it's tough because you, I mean, I'd love to hear how you're even thinking about it, but you probably have to spend money to bring people in as ConvertKit. You have to spend money to bring people in or convince writers to cross promote other writers, which is tough because there's limited newsletter space. And it's like, it, it just feels like unless you have a lot of that audience they're already looking for new ideas. It feels like a really tough behavior to like force people into. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting because I, I think I've done 10 episodes of this podcast or so, and probably eight out of 10 people have said that Twitter is their primary channel for growing their newsletter. You know, and these are people I certainly had writers because I was thinking about a newsletter related 
fun back in the day. I think everybody who's written a newsletter goes through this where they're like, these are recurring revenue businesses. What if you just took on some debt and bought these things and whatever? So I was thinking about that for a little while and so and, and surveyed people. And I think it was, you know, out of 40 writers, 9.5 out of 10, Twitter was their main channel. Yeah. And it's wild. And so Twitter now sitting in that and saying like, oh, we are everyone's dis- distribution and discovery method. And there are other channels like, um, you know, I think you'll see search kick up over time as your newsletter is around for, for longer and, and yes. things like that. It's driven my newsletter is about 25,000 subscribers and, and probably a third of my subscribers come from search just from the wow. long tail of over time. Um, but still like Twitter is massive in, in there for everyone. And so Twitter's saying like, great, we own the distribution channel. Why don't we own the newsletter channel as well? So it'd be fascinating. Like, you know, from ConvertKit's perspective, I'm like, are you going to make that open to more newsletters or is it going to be like, no, just review newsletters. And then does that become in the same way that a lot of creators uh, like James Clear, for example, would write on his own site and then republish to Medium and Quora, like uh, is review going to become this place or something that people are republishing on to get favorable rankings in an algorithm? And I have They're no going to have to make it a lot easier. That's the beauty of Medium. Uh, and even the beauty of something like Ghost, I would say, and like probably the number one thing that I'm looking for in the next platform is the ability to take something from a Google Doc and dump it into something, which is actually one of Substack's strong points. The ability to take a Google Doc, dump it somewhere else and have it pretty much show up the same way that it was in the Google Doc. And right. review, I tested when when Twitter announced that they bought it. And I was like, I can't do that on review yet. So I'm, I'm not going anywhere quite yet. Yep, that makes sense. Um, I'm curious, maybe just as we start to wrap up, who are a few of the other newsletters that you look to and, and who do you follow, both for content and then also like for ideas on how to grow your own newsletter? Yeah. Oh, man, this one's... So tough because the newsletter community, as you know, is like this very tight thing where I'm in a chat with a bunch of newsletter writers and like they're all my favorite and really it depends often on the topic. Like you have to say Ben Thompson, OG has influenced a lot of, of uh, you know, the, the way that I write. But then, you know, Mario, who we talked about, but then there's like, they're really, I think I probably subscribe to like 60 newsletters and depending on the topic, we'll open each one. And I've really tried to start going more niche into different things. So like if I was writing about NFTs and Web3 the other day, I subscribed to like three newsletters on that. So I can see, you know, even if it's just a skim, what's going on in that space that I'm now becoming more and more interested in. Or, you know, if somebody writes really, really good, really, really well on social media, then I'm interested in Twitter and Facebook, then I'll subscribe to something very specific. So I have the people that I'll just pretty much read whatever. And then I have, you know, my 40 newsletter friends who I'll read a lot of their stuff. And then I'm starting to try to find more niches. And again, as someone who's as disorganized as I am, this is, as you would imagine, a total nightmare, but I do manage to pull some good stuff from there. I like it. That's good. Well, where should people go to, to follow your newsletter and, and all your musings on Twitter and everything else? Yeah. So it's uh, notboring.co.co, um, which I just put live. Uh, that's the newsletter. And then at Packy M. P-A-C-K-Y-M on Twitter. Sounds good. Well, thanks for joining me. Thanks for hanging out. And uh, everyone should go subscribe to the newsletter and and follow you on Twitter because I am quite entertained. It's definitely not boring. And uh, it's fun to watch your growth. Appreciate you saying that, Nathan, and grabbing me on. This is a blast.